0: This program is made possible entirely by listeners just like you. For details on becoming a member or making a one-time donation, please visit bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, with clips today from The Colbert Report, The Young Turks, The Rachel Maddow Show, The Tom Hartman Program, and The Onion Radio News, with a bonus video clip for our iPhone app users from The Young Turks.
1: Brace yourselves, because I have some terrible news. At the end of this year, President Bush's tax cuts for the wealthiest 3% of Americans are set to expire. I know, I know, I know. Stay brave, stay brave. (laughs) And what will happen if these tax cuts expire? It's being called a
2: ticking tax bomb. Let's zero in on the upcoming tax bomb. It's economically insane to be, you know, dropping this tax bomb. A tax bomb! Quick,
1: rich people, to your tax shelters! (laughs) It's why we have them. It's why we have them. Thankfully, there may be a way to cut the right wire and disarm the tax bomb. And it's the subject of tonight's word. Ownership society. Folks, Republicans are in a bit of a pickle here. Because these tax cuts will add $1 trillion to the federal deficit. Now, back in the Bush administration, when these tax cuts were originally passed, Vice President Cheney famously said, deficits don't matter. But these days, (laughs) the GOP has changed its tune.
3: Jim, we can no longer afford... The unsustainable deficits of this administration. Reduce the deficit. Reduce the deficit. Reduce the
4: deficit.
5: We're
1: spending too much money. Deficits do matter. Yes, deficits do matter. And that is as true today as the last time a Democrat was in office. In fact, Republicans... Republicans... Republicans have put their deficit nuts on the table by repeatedly filibustering benefits to 15 million unemployed Americans because that would add $33 billion to the deficit. And that would just be passing that bill on to future generations. So, arguing... Arguing to add a trillion dollars to the deficit to give these tax cuts to the wealthy makes them look hypocritical and heartless. Well, (laughs) here's why they're not. Economists know tax cuts for wealthy Americans benefit everyone. It's even got a name. It's called called the trickle-down theory. Here's how it works. Let's say I'm in the top 3% of wage earners. Because I am. Okay? And this, uh, this Bud Light Lime is a refreshing tax cut. With lime. Okay? Now, the bigger, the bigger my tax cut is, the more money I can pour into the system.
4: Then. Very
1: soon, the benefits will work their way through the system and trickle down. I mean like a racehorse. Then, the other 97% of poorer Americans are welcome to have as much of that as they can collect.
4: Now, Stephen.
1: you're saying, wouldn't giving your bottle to the unemployed stimulate the economy better? No. Just ask Republican Senator Orrin Hatch.
6: You know, we should not be giving cash to people who who basically are just going to go blow it on drugs.
1: Right you are, sir. Those unemployed people should have to give urine samples. And I think I know where they can get one. The point is, trickle-down is eventually good for everyone. But in the meantime, in the meantime, here's how we help the unemployed. Give the tax cuts to the wealthy on the condition that they use that money to purchase the unemployed. Now, I am not sure... I'm not sure what we do with them, because a lot of those people seem to sit around all day. Maybe we'll, I don't know, race them for sport. Or we could selectively, we could selectively breed them until they're small enough to fit into our Louis Vuitton bags. So, Mr. Obama, Mr. Obama, you must not let the Bush tax cuts expire. Because this economy has to change. And the best way to do that is to leave things exactly the way they are.
4: There was a terrific article by Martin Wolf in the Financial Times and what he was trying to do was show that the supply side economics is nonsense. And does it wind up uh making the deficits larger if you cut taxes? The answer is of course, of course it does. Now, as some people will point out, sometimes like for example in 1980s, federal revenue from income taxes uh, brought in and by all sorts of different taxes goes up but it almost always goes up through history. So the question is that what rate is it going up, and how does it affect our deficit and our debt? So what Martin pointed out was some numbers under Reagan, Bush, one Clinton, and 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 George W. Bush, and they are damning. So let's take a look at those numbers. Um, the ratio of public debt to GDP before Reagan was thirty-three percent. So debt to GDP not that bad as a ratio. And this keeps money constant because it's a ratio uh, uh, rather than uh, an actual uh, dollar amount, right? What happens after Reagan and Bush won? The ratio of public debt to GDP jumps to 64%. Disastrously large deficits under Republican presidents. What happens during Clinton? Well, that ratio goes down because he balanced the budget and left surpluses. So your ratio of public debt, which the Republicans claim to care a lot about, the GDP goes down to fifty-seven percent. All right, now after Clinton comes Reagan of I'm sorry, get comes George W. Bush, of course. And what does he do? He skyrockets the deficit and the debt again. So the ratio of public debt to our GDP goes back up to an all-time high of sixty-nine percent. When you look at these numbers, the conclusion is inescapable. The Republicans do not care about the deficit. They can pretend all they like, but the proof is in the numbers. Every time they're in power, they drive up the deficit. When the Democratic president was in power, they drove down the deficit. They balanced the budget. They drove down public debt. So why do you, if you do, why do you still believe Republicans care about the deficit? And it goes to all the way up to today. So they say, "Oh, Obama's increasing the debt and it's terrible." All right, you're right. So let's take away. Te- the Bush tax cuts for the top 2%, because that's $678 billion. You want to do that? Oh, hell no, hell no. No, 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 no. The rich have to get their tax cuts. I don't care what it does to the debt, because that's their problem. The Republicans don't care, and they've shown over the decades that they don't care. So the next time you hear a Republican talking about how he cares about the budget, the deficit, or the debt, understand they're completely and utterly full of it. All right. I like that because I like numbers and facts. I know it makes conservative heads explode, but that's the reality.
0: You can support this podcast at no additional cost yourself when you shop at Amazon through a special widget posted at bestoftheleft.com. You can use the widget to search for what you're looking for, or simply click through and shop the site normally. Better yet, click through on the widget once and bookmark that page to use every single time you shop. By doing this, Amazon will donate around 7 or 8% of the cost of your order to support this show without adding a dime to your bill. It's very little effort on your part, but can make a huge difference to support the show. Check out the widget on the right side of bestoftheleft.com. Thanks so much for your support.
2: All right, for every available job in this country right now, as we speak, there are five or six people looking for a job. Almost half of all unemployed people have been employed for at least six months. That's double what it was last year. And then there are people who've been unemployed for so long, 99 weeks or more, their benefits have run out. There are about a million and a half such Americans, enough to warrant their very own name, the 99ers. Now, the unemployed are not a natural political constituency. For one thing, we're talking about a transient group. Once you get a job, you are by definition no longer unemployed. For those suffering long-term unemployment, there's always been the specter of shame. No one wants to scream at the top of their lungs about something they find humiliating. But now, with this recession, you just have so many people unemployed for so very long, which makes it a more stable group. Also, very importantly, you have the internet. A man in Rochester, New York, started Layoff List two years ago. He writes about unemployment news, links to state unemployment offices, and relevant government websites. He posts legislators' contact information so people can advocate for more and better unemployment benefits. The AFL-CIO set up Unemployment Lifeline. Where you can organize, learn about your rights and benefits, and find resources available to you in your community. Another union also set up its own network called Ucubed. It organizes groups of unemployed people by region, the theory being that there is political strength in numbers. Karov set out to win the 2004 presidential election by increasing the number of evangelical voters by 4 million. There are about 15 million unemployed people in this country. If just a fraction of them were well-organized and politically active, imagine how the 2010 midterm election might go for the party whose members have referred to out-of-work Americans as, quote, hobos, on the dole, spoiled, and lazy. Joining us now is Annie Lowry, reporter for The Washington Independent. Annie, great to see you.
7: It's great to be here, thanks for having me.
2: I read your piece today, I I said, darn, I wish I had written that. It was really (laughs) excellent. Um, (laughs) Thank you. How effective, I, I guess that's the first question, right? Is like, how effective are these online efforts to organize unemployed people?
7: Well, you know, thus far, they've, they've just started. This is a nascent movement. It's about It's been about six months or a year that uh, this thing called, that I call the unemployed net roots has even been in existence since the unemployment rate really started tracking up precipitously. And now these people that the unemployment benefits extension uh, battle in Congress is over, you know, all these people are still online and they're looking to the midterms and they're recognizing that they have a lot of political power and they're starting to wield it. Uh, so, you know, we don't know. This is going to be a question going forward, but all of a sudden they've sort of realized that they're a political constituency and they're starting to demand things from people who are running for office or who are representing them.
2: When you say they've they started to wield it, are there actual instances of the, thing, the activities that are going on online tr- translating into actual sort of the political effectiveness on Capitol Hill?
7: So, you know, it's just starting to, is the really interesting thing. So when legislators go home for the August recess, unemployed people are going to go to their campaign rallies and ask them questions about this, and they're doing it with union backing. So the AFL, CIOs, Working America, and Cubed are organizing people online and saying, hey, let's go to some rallies. You know, they're sort of taking a page out of the Tea Partiers book, out of all things, and, and, and they're sort of demanding answers from these people. They've also been very successful at deluging offices, with calls and faxes and emails, and uh, and and they've been very successful in that. And you know, it's just this big question moving forward: if all of these millions of people are connecting online, what kind of effect they might have?
2: I thought it was really interesting. There was one guy you talked to in the article who said he'd been a lifelong Republican, and mm-hmm. and was sort of this was this kind of radicalizing moment. And you know, I, I think I know people I've interviewed who are unemployed. You know, this is not it's not a a demographic of people that you can sort of easily make generalizations about, but there's a lot of people who are used to being politically effective, who are used to a certain professional lifestyle, who have credentials, and they're, they're used to having a certain amount of say over their lives, and they've had this kind of radicalizing effect. I wonder how much that's kind of driving the organizing you're seeing.
7: Yeah, I think it absolutely is. Uh, you know, so there was an eight-month battle for the unemployment extensions in Congress and specifically in the Senate. And you had, you know, senators like Jim Bunning standing up and saying, I, this single senator, am going to stop this from moving forward. And I think that the, the, the unemployed really didn't understand, you know, it was just weeks ago, it was last week even, that, that congressional inaction led to 2.6 million people losing extended unemployment, and unemployment benefits that they had expected to get. And so, yeah, the guy I spoke with in the article he doesn't want to vote for Harry Reid but he will because Sharon Engel called him spoiled and said that his benefits needed to be cut and that was why he was unemployed and you know that doesn't ring true for him and that doesn't ring true for millions of Americans who are in the same you know circumstance and and notably you know there's about 14 and a half million people who are currently unemployed but over the course of the recession there's been about 30 million Americans who've experienced a period of joblessness
2: I wonder also, ultimately, if 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 the Republican Party has sort of misjudged this constituency as well. I mean, I wonder, or, or 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 lack of constituency in the past. I mean, it seems like it's you can you know there's been the Reagan dumping on the welfare queens and this idea that you can <laughs> sort of safely attack people on the dole. But when those people are brother-in-laws and uncles and uh, mm-hmm. you know your substitute teacher that you remember from the neighborhood, you know it becomes much more politically dangerous.
7: Yeah, absolutely. And another place where you're seeing this is, uh, you know, it was yesterday. Uh, a national federation of states said that local governments are going to lay off maybe 500,000 public employees, and we're talking police officers and teachers and right. firefighters. And you know, it's it's again because of congressional inaction. So you know, joblessness is is so spread throughout the economy um, and is such a present problem that you know, and like you mentioned, with with five job seekers looking for every job, and you know, in states like Michigan or Nevada, something like mm-hmm. ten or. 20 job seekers looking for every job. It's hard to describe these people as as lazy, spoiled, you know, people on the dole.
8: A working class hero is something to be A working class hero is something to be They hurt you at home and they hit you at school they hate you if you're clever and they despise a fool till you're so fucking crazy you can't follow their rules
3: i'm reading this issue of harper's I'm, I'm reading this article the cover story the food bubble how wall street Starved millions and got away with it and i want to share with you just a couple of sentences Fred, Fred Kaufman wrote this thing that just totally blew my mind and I'm, I'm sitting here sharing this with Louise First of all, the it opens the history of food took an ominous turn in 1991 at a time when no one was paying much attention. That was the year that Goldman Sachs decided our daily bread might make an excellent investment and then toward the end of the story just a couple of second sentences here bankers had taken control of the world's food money chase money and a billion. People went hungry. Remember the the food riots of a couple years ago around the world? The worldwide price of food had risen by 80% between 2005 and 2008. And unlike other food catastrophes of the past half century or so, the United States was not insulated from this one. Could it be because it was our banksters who were doing it? As 49 million Americans found themselves unable to put a full meal on the table. 1 in 5 kids came to depend on food kitchens in Los Angeles, nearly a million people went hungry, in Detroit armed guards had to watch over grocery stores. And then the question, could this happen again? And I and I came back and I, I shared this story with uh, Sean our executive producer and said we've we've got to cover this. This is a uh, this is a BFD as uh, Joe Biden would say. And so Frederick Kaufman the contributing editor to Harper's Magazine, author of this month's guest, or excuse me, this month's cover story, uh, the, uh, which uh, is just absolutely remarkable, The Food Bubble, How Wall Street Starved Millions and Got Away With It. He's also the author of several books, including A Short History of the American Stomach. You can check out the, uh, the new article over at Harper's.org. Uh we did Frederick welcome to the program first. Thank of. you Tom. Thank you Tom. Great to have you with us. We did contact Goldman Sachs, invited them to come on this program. Uh, they explicitly said, specifically said, uh no thank you. Uh, uh Stephen Strongen, the head of social, uh, global investment research has written a letter in response to your article and that letter stands and so I'm going to uh toss a couple pieces of that to you. But first Frederick, give us a summary. You're, you I know I've I've shared a few words from your article, but give us the big picture here on your
5: article well i think we can all remember that back in two thousand eight the price uh... that we paid for our weekly groceries went way up that uh... milk went up and eggs went up and the price of hamburger meat went up and what was behind this unbelievable rise in the price of food and that's what i went to find out about a year ago And what I discovered was that there is an incredible pressure being put on the price of food, not actually from any issue in the food supply. And one of the things we have to get clear right from the start, whenever we talk about the issues of global hunger, whenever we talk about the issues of food price, we have to remember that there is enough food in the world to feed double the population. There is no crisis. There is no shortage in the amount of food. So therefore, what drives people to hunger? And in 2008, what drove 250 million more people into the hunger, bringing the world figure to over a billion? What did it? It's the price of food. It's when the food price goes up and up and up. That's when people starve. Because in this country, we might find it inconvenient to spend five, six, seven dollars for a dozen eggs, but in another country where you're spending 80 80 percent of your income each day on food those kinds of price increases drive you into famine And so what I discovered was a new kind of investment that really hit full stride right around the time that the food prices went up, and that was the commodity index fund. And so that's what I wrote about in Harper's, about how Wall Street was actually behind this outrageous statistic of more than a billion hungry people on Earth.
3: It's it's absolutely amazing, Frederick. And uh, we're talking with Frederick uh, Kaufman, Fred Kaufman, who's who's uh, who wrote the cover article, the current issue of Harper's, and you got to read this thing. Uh, we saw Wall Street after the Commodities Futures Modernization Act was passed, uh, Phil Graham's brilliant little piece of legislation that Bill Clinton enthusiastically signed off on in 99, as I recall, maybe it was 2000. Um, that it, it allowed them to turn money into a commodity. In fact, not even the money, but bets on bets on bets on the promise of money into a commodity that could be bought and sold. And so we have $600 trillion worth of derivatives out there right now, according to the Bank of International Settlements, which, you know, compared to the $65 trillion world GDP. And, and back in the 90s, and and i'm wondering was this a, a part of the deregulation of the reagan bush era or what the banks decided that they would make some money off you know corn and hog bellies and soybeans things that traditionally were traded between buyers and sellers, as a way of hedging, hedging their bets, you know, that, that sta- actually stabilized the market. Uh, and, and, and when the banksters got in, they just, as you point out in the article, everybody was just buying long. In other words, they were screwing up the market, but they made a hell of a lot of money doing it.
5: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right on on all points there, Tom. And I think one of the things that we have to get over when we discuss the food bubble and we discuss uh what happened in agricultural markets is everybody's eyes just they just glaze over and their brains turn off when we start talking about wheat futures or corn futures. And I was the same way until I realized that it's precisely that turn off, it's precisely that glazing of the eyes which the bankers are exploiting to their own advantage the fact that we don't understand. Most people don't understand it. The fact that they are able to manipulate it in their own particular way, and this is what I discovered. So that's the first thing we have to keep in mind: is that we actually can understand this. That right. when people talk about longs and shorts, those are not the most difficult ideas right. in the world and to And go the second long, thing,
3: and the second thing, Fred, we just have a half a half a minute left yeah, yeah. here. And and, oh yeah, yeah,
5: yeah. And the second thing is that you're absolutely right about deregulation. This starts in the Reagan years; it's a twenty-year process. Mm-hmm. And you're also right about stabilization, which is that the bankers have a stake in destabilized grain markets. I mean, that's right. the real outrage here: is that they are seeking to destabilize markets so that they can profit on rising prices. Except they've forgotten that there is reality and there is fiction, and their fiction might be a beautiful mathematical formula that they can get rich on. But the reality is, people need food to eat.
9: It's the Onion Radio News, a company you've never heard of wants to reward you for your good credit. This is Doyle Redland reporting. Regent Financial Services, a Tampa-based company you've never heard of, is so impressed with your responsible spending and timely credit card payments that it wants to reward you with a gold Visa card. According to the unfamiliar firm's unsolicited letter to you, which is sitting unopened on your kitchen table, you have maintained an outstanding credit rating and deserve to move up to a higher spending level. With a lower rate of interest. Despite an enthusiastic closing request to quote, sign up and go gold, a spokesman for you confirmed that you remain $8,000 in debt on your current visa card and should throw the letter away. Royal Redland for
10: somewhere The Onion Radio News. Online at The Onion. Beyond the sea,
8: somewhere waiting for me. My lover stands on golden sand. Watches the ships that go sailing somewhere beyond the sea. She's there watching for me. If I could fly like birds on high, then straight to her arms I'd go sailing.
3: 75 years, America's seniors have been able to grow old with dignity
6: and security. But Republicans want to change the system, risking Social Security in the stock market, privatizing it for corporate profit, ending guaranteed benefits, or getting rid of it altogether. On this anniversary, tell Republicans to keep their hands off Social Security.
4: Finally, the Democrats getting it. This is such an obvious winning strategy, and the Republicans gave you the queen here when John Boehner and and Mike Pence came out and said, "Hey, you know what? Maybe we should raise the uh, the age of Social Security before you can get it," or they said, "Maybe we should cut your benefits." You know what the numbers are? The American people hate that idea. A new AARP poll says 85% of the country oppose. Cutting Social Security. 68% say, even though the budget is really, really important, that we shouldn't cut Social Security or Medicare to trim the deficit, according to a a recent Greenberg poll. Look, the American people are absolutely clear on this. When the Republicans ask over and over, as Bush did, and now Pence and Boehner are doing, hey, can we cut your Social Security? The American people say, hell no, you can't, to quote John Boehner. So, given this golden opportunity, why don't you attack on this? Make Boehner the new Gingrich and say if Boehner is in charge of the House, what he's going to do is he's going to come after your Social Security. That has the added benefit of being true. But how did the Democrats screw this up? Look, it's a good ad and a good campaign to start with. But they've already shot themselves in the foot. Because. Already, uh, Steny Hoyer, who's one of the uh, leaders in the House, came out and said, Well, maybe we should consider trimming Social Security or raising the age that you would have to retire. And then James Clyburn came out and said very similar things. Now, that's a trouble for the Democrats in the House. But how about Obama? Obama, a Democratic president that promised change, has got a deficit commission. Where 14 out of the 18 people involved in the commission are fiscal conservatives. The likely result of that deficit commission is they're going to come out and say, let's cut Social Security. That's insane! Listen to the American people. We're supposed to be in a democracy. They don't want you to cut that. There was another poll earlier that said that is the absolute last thing they want you to cut. They they're willing to have you cut the spending for the wars. They're willing to have you tax the rich more. They're willing to do so much more, but don't touch Social Security. Now, if the Democrats had any sense, they'd beat up the Republicans on this issue. I'm afraid they've already given up the queen by doing the things they have with Hoyer and Clyburn and the deficit commission, but. It's not too late. They can rally around and make this the defining issue of the 2010 elections if they have any sense in them at all.
11: David Pakman here, host of the nationally syndicated Midweek Politics with David Pakman. If you're anything like me, you're a regular listener to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with Jay Tomlinson. If you like that, I want to invite you to check out my show, Midweek Politics with David Pakman. Not only will you hear the best of the left, but you'll hear some of the worst of the right, including some of the craziest bigots and racists you've ever seen. But don't worry, I don't agree with them. Check out midweekpolitics.com, check out my show, continue listening to Best of the Left podcast, and even consider becoming a member of the Midweek Politics. Membership program.
8: What did he say? He me babe,
10: babe. We Begin tonight with great economic news out today. Another month. Another reason for optimism when it comes to the US economy. The new jobs numbers came out today and they revealed that last month, the month of July, businesses across the country added 71,000 jobs. That is the seventh straight month that that has happened. It was the third best month for private sector jobs all year. On top of that, Manufacturing jobs are beginning to come back. 36,000 manufacturing jobs added last month alone, which makes more than 180,000 manufacturing jobs added since the beginning of the year. Good times, right? Wasn't it great? Wasn't it great in the midst of all the other bad things going on in the world? Wasn't it great to have a whole day of just hearing about how excited and happy everybody was about the good economic news?
4: Jobs Wanted. New unemployment numbers show many Americans still struggling in the job
10: search. The new unemployment report came out today. 131,000 jobs lost last month.
1: After five months of net job growth, the economy has now lost jobs for two straight months.
10: Oh, yeah. The um, bits of good news that there were today, all that private sector good news, the manufacturing jobs and all that, Um, those were completely swamped by the fact that public sector jobs fell off a cliff. We lost more than 200,000 public sector jobs last month alone. The public sector. Public sector is the government sector. These are government jobs. As we try to pull out of the worst recession since the Great Depression, everybody's been fighting about what is within the government's power to do. What's the best use of government power to tackle the unemployment rate, to create jobs? Well, one easy way, um, which isn't really up for a debate about whether or not it works, is the government directly hiring somebody. That's a job. There are jobs that need to be done by the government, right? And so the the single least economically controversial thing government can do to keep people employed is literally to keep its own employees employed. But right now that is not happening. As of last month, local governments had laid off 234,000 workers. Another 247,000 are expected to be laid off over the next few months. That is a quarter of a million already and a quarter of a million on the way. Now this happens in recessions people go broke and because we're broke we pay less taxes and that means that governments of all sizes get less money which means they have to lay people off and cut services this happens in recessions in the early 1980s during the horrible reagan recession the number of people working for local governments dropped by almost four percent it was really really bad now it hasn't been that bad yet this time even though this recession is actually worse. The reason it hasn't been that bad is in large part because of the stimulus. One of the stimulus things the federal government did was keep people employed. They gave money to state and local governments. Why do that? Because it keeps people employed, which keeps them having an income, which keeps them spending, which keeps the the economy growing for everybody. Even if you don't like the idea of people working for the government, it is in fact stimulus for the whole economy. Governments laying people off is very anti-stimulative. Bad not only for those people, but bad for the economy. And so if that is happening, which it is right now in a very big way, if state and local governments are laying off their own employees, something is wrong with your stimulus policies. Do you wanna see where exactly it all went wrong? Remember when Congress was debating the stimulus package last year? Remember when the stimulus package was on life support? and Democrats started cutting last-minute deals with Republicans, guess what fell victim to that deal-making?
4: Good morning. We have a deal, they say. Late-night brokering leads to an agreement in principle on President Obama's economic stimulus plan. Good morning, Lester. The biggest cuts in this uh, deal to trim the uh, trim the package by $100 billion comes in money to states to help them with their budget shortfalls.
10: Ding, 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 ding. Republicans and conservatives fought to get tens of billions of dollars of money for states taken out of the stimulus package. In order to try to get conservative votes, Democrats gave up what would have actually made the economy better, and now we are paying the price for it. Democrats watered down the stimulus. They literally made it less stimulative. They made it less effective. And the result is that they are still getting nailed for having spent all that money on the stimulus, but the stimulus isn't actually doing as much as it should. So they're getting nailed again for not having much to show for what they spent. So they get hit for spending the money and they get hit for the fact that it didn't have the necessary effect. Since then, Democrats have tried to make up for it with a standalone state aid bill that Republicans decided to delay for weeks. That bill has now passed the Senate, but with a quarter of a million state and local jobs already gone and a quarter million more on the way to being gone, frankly, the damage is already done. And of course, the worse off Americans are, the better for Republicans politically. Here's how Matt Iglesias, at Think Progress, put it today quote, "The losses came from the public sector, and they were foreseeable, and they were foreseen by the President of the United States and the Speaker of the House of Representatives and the majority Leader of the United States Senate and the majority of House members and a majority of Senators. But because in the Senate a minority of members can get their way, can get their way action wasn't taken. Consequently, we have a horrible jobs number, which would be bad enough. But the way the American political system works, the minority party that prevented the majority from addressing the crisis will accrue massive political benefits as a result of the collapse. Memo to Democrats, Republicans are going to attack you no matter what you do. If you accept that truth, just get zen about it. You're a duck, beat up, roll off, beat up, roll off. If you just accept that, and you do not try to pointlessly shield yourself from criticism that's gonna come anyway. You don't try to pointlessly shield yourself from the criticism by making your actions less effective, but instead you actually take great care to make sure that your actions are effective, then you not only stand a better chance at winning the political argument, you also stand a better chance of helping the country out of what really are quite dire. Straits.
8: That's the way you do it. Money for nothing and your chicks for free. Money for nothing.
1: I don't know about you, but I am still seething over the financial regulation bill President Obama signed into law last month. And to think he signed it in the Ronald Reagan building. That's like celebrating Hanukkah in the Richard Nixon building. The legislation creates a Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which is supposed to protect consumers from deception and abuses by the financial services industry. Now, yes, banks abuse their customers, but customers don't need a new agency, just a safe word. (laughs) Like pumpkin patch. Just shout that and the bank knows to take the clamp off your balls. (laughs) Folks, folks, we already have the FDA telling me I can't get vitamin C from eating orange paint chips, and now there's gonna be a consumer protection czar? It is an extraordinarily
6: powerful position with an incredibly large budget and authority that is constrained by almost nothing.
1: Yes, a huge budget and no constraint on authority. That kind of unchecked power must be reserved for Oprah. Now, Congressional Democrats like Barney Frank want Obama to pick friend of the show and damn fine-looking regulator, Elizabeth Warren. I never had a better partner on a
9: tough fight than I had in Elizabeth Warren. And, and her knowledge is great, her compassion is great. She, she stands out uh, as the person who ought to be running that agency.
1: Wow. Get a subcommittee hearing room already. <laughs> but, folks... Warren is clearly prejudiced against lenders.
10: Typical credit card contract today is more than 30 pages long. Back in 1980, it was about a page and a half long. Now, that additional 28 pages is mostly full of tricks and traps. What?
1: Tricks and traps? My credit card agreement is perfectly clear. Okay, here we go. All right. any claim, dispute, or controversy, whether in contract, regulatory, tort, otherwise, or whether pre-existing, present, or future, and including constitutional, statutory, common law, intentional, tort, and equitable claims arising from or relating to, A, the credit offered or provided to you, B, the actions of you, us, or third parties connected with the account, or C, the applicability or validity of this arbitration provision, individually and collectively a claim, must, after an election by you or us, be resolved by binding arbitration in accordance with this arbitration provision and the commercial or other applicable arbitration rules. That just means if I don't make my payments on time, I have to confess to the murder of a drifter. (laughs) So, Warren is the wrong person for the job. But is the job even necessary? Here to defend coddling consumers, Please welcome the chairman of the House Financial Services Committee and my dear friend, Congressman Barney Frank. Mr. Frank, good to see you after five years. Now, sir, why do we even need this consumer protection agency? It has been almost 18 months since the world economy almost melted down. Things are fine.
9: Well, this is in part to make sure that that doesn't happen again, or as nearly sure as we can be. Because the problem with the consumer abuses, uh, for instance, in the mortgage area, is that they didn't just hurt the consumers, although you would think that would be reason enough to respond, but taken together, they had a systemic impact. In other words, when a lot of bad mortgage loans were made to a lot of people, and in consequence, a lot of mortgages go broke. The problem is an economy-wide problem.
1: But isn't this just another nanny state overreach by the government? I mean, if the founding fathers were really worried about mortgage bundling or ATM fees, wouldn't they have said so in the Constitution? Well, actually, the founding fathers talked about bundling, but they meant
9: something a little more sexual when they talked about bundling. Mm -hmm. Um, Ben Franklin wrote about it a lot. Yes. I do think that the nanny state should be resisted. That's why I don't want there to be criminal penalties for people who choose to smoke marijuana for personal use. I think that's pretty nanny. <laughs> Are you high right now? No, not at all. Okay. No way. Uh, and no, it's not the nanny state. If you know everything and choose to spend your money foolishly, we aren't trying to stop you. But we do think that you ought to know everything, that you shouldn't be confronted with hidden kinds of situations, that you shouldn't be entrapped into a situation where you have no choice and your money is taken from you. The other but, answer, sir, that is, is
1: just that, the nature of banks. I mean, that's like asking a tiger to change its stripes or to penalize a shark for having teeth.
9: No, um- Yes, we, um, uh, Well, the trouble with analogies like that is that they make no sense, so it's kind of hard to figure out how to refute them. Well, um, they make no sense to not, you
1: because I just won.
9: No, you, I don't know what you won. Banks aren't tigers. Credit card accounts
1: are in stripes. Okay, they're grizzly bears in- devouring our children. Well, your metaphors can get people carried away. But don't the banks de- don't the banks deserve some protection also? I mean, banks are consumers. They consume our life savings when we don't read the fine print. No, banks do get a lot
9: of protection. That's one of the reasons why we particularly regulate banks. So it's precisely because they get protection that we are entitled to uh, ask in return. And I'm still trying to. Uh, figure out why you can't tell the difference between Chase Manhattan and a tiger. Uh, I'd be very careful. If I were you, I'd
1: be very careful going to the zoo. All oh, right. no, sir, why do you liberals love Elizabeth Warren so much, Beside the fact that she is a damn fine-looking woman? You'd agree with me there, wouldn't you?
9: Well, yes, but you do realize that that would not be my motivation. Um, the, the fact is that... Uh, She's she's important because she'd be a great administrator of that agency, which she helped create. She is an extraordinarily zealous pragmatist. She has a dedication to a set of issues and a
1: great way of accomplishing them. And I think we need more examples of that. Well, then why has the White House so far not heeded your call? I mean, why would Senator Dodd say that she may not be confirmable? The argument that you could easily be confirmed in the Senate I don't think that's an argument in favor of you. Now, Elizabeth Warren first put this idea out there in a magazine article. Do you and the other Democrats just blindly follow everything you read in magazine articles? Because I'd like to know well, who's heading up the congressional subcommittee to investigate whether stars are just like us. I thought you were a star, Stephen. Of course I am, and I know well, I'm not you like mean? you. How
9: can you say stars are just like us? I don't understand what that means. You not want to. Last question, does she get the nod? Um, I don't know if she gets a nod. I'm hoping she gets the job. I've never quite been sure what a nod is. But I I am
1: pushing hard for her to get the job. Congressman, thanks for coming on. Congressman Barney Frank, everybody.
0: a year, a little discount for you. Please consider signing up for a membership at bestoftheleft.com. Members even receive bonus audio and video content on top of the rest that doesn't make it into the final cut of the show. So please, again, check out the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Thanks so much for your support.
3: Were you and I born on the wrong continent? Is that possible? I'll tell you, our parents and grandparents certainly didn't think so. They saw the American dream, that is, the middle-class dream. The dream of being able to raise your kids, own your home, have a pension, have retirement, have some security, have health care. They saw that dream full-blown. And then Ronald Reagan came into office. Well, that's my rant. Let's find out what Tom Gagan's uh, rant on this is. Thomas Gagan is the author of a new book, Were You Born on the Wrong Continent? How the European Model Can Help You Get a Life. Thomas Gagan, uh, his website, uh, Tom Thomas, T H O M A S, Gagan, G O E G H E G A N dot com. You can find a link to it over at Hartman dot com. On the line with us, uh, Thomas Gagan, welcome. Hey, Tom. Thanks for having me. Brilliant book, sir, you have written. An absolutely brilliant book. Let's just go through some of it. Uh, you talked about when unemployed, you'd certainly be better off in Europe. Uh, Europe is set up for the bourgeois. bourgeoisie, people who make $50,000 or below. Europe is set up for those people. We're set up for the rich. Is that what you're saying?
6: Uh, I'd say they're set up for the plutocratic rich, not just the rich.
3: Uh, the super rich.
6: Yeah, and that's where the uh, income growth is all gone. The very uh, top uh, tenth of the top one percent. I mean, even some of the rich are getting screwed in this country.
3: Yeah, the the middle rich. Yeah, <laughs> you say uh, technically we seem far ahead, but don't uh, drool. The U.S. super rich gobble up two thirds of the increase. You're talking about how it looks like our per capita income is going up, but that's because a small number of mind bogglingly wealthy people. You know, it's the old joke about, you know, nine guys are standing in a bar, Bill Gates walks in, and suddenly the average income went to a billion dollars a person. Uh,
6: That's exactly the kind of statistical fallacy that's used to show that average income in the U.S. is higher than in Europe and so forth. Yeah, it's all. It's, um, you know, this book, uh, especially Chapter Two of it tries to explain why this is, um, uh, um, well, shall we say, a bit of a crock.
3: Yeah, yeah, and uh, not ju- not just a bit of a crock, a, a serious crock, in fact. Yeah. Uh, and, and 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 in fact, not just for workers. Um, I'm looking at page 81, and you've got the percentage of adults who are self-employed, and you know we think of self-employed people, entrepreneurs, people who are starting their own businesses. Um, I've done that many times in my life. Arguably, I'm self-employed right now, and uh, in that, you know, Louise and I own the business that is this radio and television program, and uh, we've got some employees. But um, I think I'm self-employed. The government thinks I am. Uh, certainly, creditors think I am. In the U.S., that's seven point two percent. In the Netherlands, it's twelve percent.
6: Yeah, it, it's it's very strange. Uh, John Schmidt at the Economic Policy Institute has done this study, which I uh, am citing on that particular page. But he, he, the, the myth is that uh, this is the continent of the entrepreneurs and over there it's all uh people who are dependent upon others there's far more entrepreneurship starting up of new businesses in these so-called european socialist countries than there is over here uh,
10: yeah, and and it because... and, re- and
6: it makes sense when you think about the the fact that uh, if you've got single payer in some countries you don't have to take on health costs the the uh incentive to go out and start a business is um, actually greater uh, uh over there
3: Right he, here, for example, we used to have before the bankruptcy reform. We used to have bankruptcy laws that allowed people to take chances. And you know, Henry Ford famously declared bankruptcy, I think, seven times. Thomas Edison did. Uh, a number of uh, famous American entrepreneurs, you know, went through hard times before they hit it. Uh, nowadays, it's almost impossible to declare bankruptcy if you're a small business person and 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 have anything out of it that would allow you to restart. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas that's not necessarily the case in Europe. Not to mention, as you say, the whole social safety net thing, um, including. Including and in particularly health insurance, you know. In the chapter, I'm sorry, I picked the Germans. Uh, it was a fascinating story. You go over to Germany, you meet uh, several people. Uh, one of them uh, is uh, this person who was a formerly a CEO and now he's a labor organizer. Yeah,
6: that's strange. Uh, there are plenty of people. It's odd, you know. Uh, when I went around uh, Germany, Berlin, uh, Frankfurt, um, even some of. Uh, the Germans who became friends of mine, who I thought of as lawyers and bankers, and and were, mm. um, you know, at odd times they would say, "Well, I'm in a union," you know, and they would take out their union card, or even more extraordinary to me, they take out their Sparkasse government bank credit card. You know, the Germans have all these government banks with low uh, right. credit card rates and so forth that don't gouge people and that force, <laughs> sort of like a public option, all the other big banks to play at their level.
3: Mm-hmm. Um, it's um and it's kind of tied into the post office is uh, called and,
6: and well right yeah. and then they <clears throat> often the Germans wink and nod at you and these are people who are capitalists and just say uh, and will say uh well welcome to a socialist country you know i mean yep. they they sort of laugh about it
3: yeah, no, I lived there for a year. I know exactly what you're talking about. And in fact, with the year that Louise and I lived there, all three of our kids were in the German public school system. And I remember when our, Justin, our, our middle child, he was in the second grade, and that was the point at which they were doing the initial testing to determine whether this kid would be, uh, would be appropriate for the Realschule or the Gymnasium. Mm-hmm. And, and you talk about these, the dual track, and really three tracks that the Germans have, yeah. and the possibility of getting the, the full education Education that a young person needs to be able to have the full potential of their lives—not just for first personal self uh, empowerment, but also so that they can be taxpayers. Yes. Yeah. Um Tom, um, uh, the, the editor of this book said
6: to me uh, after she had edited it, she said, "You know, the extraordinary thing about this book is you go through and you talk about how Germany is so competitive and so—and you never mention the education system, uh, mm-hmm. or you don't blame it on the education system, but I do." Um mm-hmm. you know, their, their education system isn't about, uh, uh, scoring well on test scores and so forth. No. It, it's trying to create a skill-based economy in a way that ours is, you know, our economy is completely unmoored to anything in the economy, uh, the real economy. It's all the, uh, this kind of abstract competition on test scores. And we don't have an education system like theirs that is actually rigged up to, Uh, specific skill development, and and to the labor movement, which Mm. which has a real operating control of big parts of the German education system, so that they educate the kids not only into the skills, but in the union membership at the same time.
3: That's right, and they become tradesmen and journeymen, you know, as they're going through school or as they first enter the workplace. And they
6: not only have those skills. But they had the political education from the system to know how to protect those skills that's right. in the political process.
3: That's right. So and that, back in so the 80s, the companies
6: don't all move every single
3: job abroad. Right. And back in the 80s, here in the United States, uh, during the Reagan era, the conservatives led this war on public education. That oh my God, we're teaching the history of the labor movement in our schools. That's communism. We can, and all that's been stripped out of our schools now. We don't. We had uh, we have we have an intern here, um, just just completed public school, and he said, you know, his the limits of his. Civics class was memorizing dates. Nothing about the the, the sure. Wobblies. Nothing about the labor movement. Nothing about the nineteen thirty five Flint sit sit, sit downs. Nothing. Nothing. If,
6: hey, yeah. if Back- you want to be competitive in a global economy, you've got to teach two things. Number one, you've got to have an education system that is that is focused on skill based education, which Germany is and ours is. And the second is you've got to have an education system that actually turns out citizens who yep. protect their uh, rights and. Um, you know vote themselves a better
3: deal yeah and understand their history and their power and where it came from uh, you and, and to that uh, Thomas Thomas Gagan and we have just a minute left here you you contrast Berlin with Chicago yeah. uh, rather brilliantly you say after all I just come from Chicago uh, poor Breck spent much of his life comparing Chicago and Berlin you say I'd like to see one monument in Chicago to all the children who've been murdered within a few miles of where I've been sitting writing this book um, the contrast between America and the European Dream Thomas gagan Your 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 thoughts on that? We have about well, half a minute for your uh, uh,
6: it, It's in some ways, uh, you know, uh, Chicago has become the darker city than Berlin, and 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 uh, I mean, there's a kind of uh, tragedy. Uh, that is playing out here, uh, that, uh, no longer is, is, is the, uh, makes, uh, uh, Berlin and Chicago, uh, equivalents. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm attracted to Berlin. I went there because I'm a Chicago guy. <laughs> it's, it's a mm-hmm. big rambling city in the middle of, uh, Europe, uh, like, uh, Chicago is in America. It's got a great, Um, uh, perspective for seeing the way that europeans live and they live a lot better than we do in all sorts of ways especially in the month of august tom
8: hot town summer in the city back of my neck getting dirty and gritty bend down isn't it a pity doesn't seem to be a shadow in the city all around people looking half dead walking on the sidewalk hotter than a match but at night it's different world That's all right Despite the heat It'll be all right And babe Don't you know It's a pity The days Can't be like the nights In the summer In the city In the summer In the city cool town, Meeting in the city Dressed so fine
10: we have been checking out local news there to see what's getting covered these days uh, in Nogales, Arizona. And, and everybody else uh, in the country has been talking about places like Nogales, essentially behind its back because of the Arizona immigration scapegoating. But we wanted to find out what Nogales itself has been talking about. That's the idea behind the reporting trip, and that's the idea behind why we've been reading their local paper. Here's the front page headline of the Nogales International newspaper from Friday. County cuts service. 879 streetlights to turn off. To save $90,000, Cash Strapped Santa Cruz County in Arizona has decided to turn out the lights to let 879 streetlights go dark. Times are tough right now like they are everywhere in the country and this is Santa Cruz County's efforts to effort to tighten its fiscal belt. They are shutting off the lights and you know it's not just Nogales Arizona that is experiencing darker than normal nights right now. Last year, the city of Santa Rosa, California, decided to do the same thing. They removed 6,000 streetlights and turned off another 3,000 more after midnight, an effort to save the city 400 grand. Earlier this year, officials in Fitchburg, Massachusetts, shut off more than 3,000 of their streetlights. Colorado Springs, Colorado, turned off about 8,000 of theirs. Colorado Springs has also dropped more than 40 of its police officers, And I kid you not, they have auctioned off their police helicopters. Not because crime is over, wahoo, in Colorado Springs. um, It's because they're broke. Philadelphia has decided to shut down three fire companies every day and three every night. Rolling firefighting brownouts in order to try to save Philadelphia some cash. The Wall Street Journal reported recently on the growing number of places across the country where local governments are unpaving the roads. They are turning paved roads into gravel roads because paved roads are too expensive to maintain. It's not one little town's wacky Luddite solution. It's happening in North Dakota, more than 100 miles of road in South Dakota, in 38 counties in Michigan, and it's happening in Ohio, and it's happening in Alabama, and it's happening in Pennsylvania. Which means that somewhere in China, it is entirely possible that a business person sat down for a ride on a 200-mile-an-hour, state-of-the-art, levitating bullet train and cracked open the Wall Street Journal and read about how, in America, we've decided we can't afford paved roads anymore. Consider also Clayton County, Georgia. Clayton County, Georgia, decided to solve its budget crisis by ending its public bus service. Not cutting back the number of buses, not suspending certain bus routes, but just shutting down its bus service altogether. More than 8,000 people who rely on that bus service every single day to get to work or school, they are totally out of luck. Speaking of school, that is where the state of Hawaii has decided to look to for an answer to its budget woes. Public schools in Hawaii have been implementing a four-day school week, just not opening schools on Fridays. Hawaii schools closed their doors on 17 Fridays over the past school year. Just make do, moms and dads. How are you gonna deal with the childcare issue? Hawaii, of course, is the home state of President Obama, who made the case today that short-changing education, doing things like, say, cutting down the number of school days, um, is actually counterproductive to keeping the U.S. economy going.
3: The single most important thing we can do is to make sure we've got a world-class education system for everybody. That is a prerequisite for prosperity. Education is an economic issue. Education is
10: the economic issue of our time. If that's the case, if education is the economic issue of our times, then how exactly is our economy affected by just lopping a whole day of instruction off the school week? How exactly is our economy affected by 46,000 education jobs being lost over the past three months? In order to prevent more of that, in order to prevent things like cops and firefighters being laid off and streetlights being shut off, something extraordinary is happening in politics this week. Members of the House of Representatives are returning to Washington during their August recess to vote on emergency funding for states and local governments, a $26 billion state aid bill that will, among other things, prevent thousands of teachers from being laid off which is, if you ask Tea Party activists, it's a horrible idea to try to stop teachers from being laid off. Tea Party activists have reportedly planned protests against the aid package in at least a dozen states. The Hill newspaper says, quote, the activists are upset over $10 billion in the package for a fund to stop teacher layoffs. They argue that states have hired far too many teachers in the last decade, and they should be downsizing the pool of teachers rather than asking for a federal bailout. Oh, see, it's a bailout now. That's the argument, class sizes are too small. We need to fire some more teachers, America. Apparently agreeing with the Tea Partiers are House Republicans, the vast majority of whom are expected to vote against that state aid bill tomorrow. Earlier today, soon-to-be former Republican Congressman Pete Hoekstra of Michigan tweeted this, quote, on the way to DC, vote on more deficit stimulus spending. Spending is destroying America. Time to stop. I'll vote no. The number three House Republican, Mike Pence, stated his opposition to the bill this way.
3: I have to tell you, I think the American people are tired of more spending, more bailouts, and they're gonna be frustrated with Congress coming back from a recess when we should be listening to the American people to do more of the same.
10: For the record, Mike Pence, along with a number of other Republicans, are now railing against this state aid bill for teachers and cops and firefighters, while simultaneously arguing to extend the Bush tax cuts for the wealthiest Americans. Against this state aid bill, which by the way is totally paid for and wouldn't be added to the deficit, They're they're against that, but they are for tax cuts, which are not paid for, and which would add about mm, roughly uh, $700 billion to the deficit. Republicans are essentially arguing that rich people can't go back to the tax rates they were paying during the Clinton years in order to prevent rich people from having to go back to those tax rates, in order to prevent that horror movie. We're all gonna have to take a kick in the teeth. We're gonna have to just load $700 billion onto the deficit. Sure, it'll hurt, it's awful, but do it for the rich people. They hurt so bad in the 90s, we can never ask them to go back to that. Now, as for you people who have kids in public schools, you folks are gonna have to suffer. We are cutting teachers, we are cutting cops, we're cutting firefighters, we're cutting streetlights, we're cutting buses. We are literally unpaving the roads for you because spending for you is wrong and it's bad for America. Spending for the richest people in the country to have a giant $700 billion tax cut? That's right. That's good for America. It's a hell of a choice heading into the fall.
9: This is Rich from New Jersey. I'm just calling
1: in on your show about net neutrality. Uh, I just wanted to say that it's pretty much the difference between hot and cold, and if we see that uh, the corporations, not to insinuate all corporations, but if they do get their way, Google and Verizon, it's pretty obvious to see that the government in this country has failed. Thanks, keep for the great work, and everybody keep donating.
9: Bye.
11: Hi, my name is Nicholas Guan, I'm calling from Pomona, California, and I just wanted to call to clarify about the net neutrality, which of course I'm in favor of. I was calling to say, um, at the end of your last show, you made it sound like um, that the net neutrality was about uh, paying for different... Speeds to the internet. We already have that. Um, I personally pay uh, for DSL at a lower bandwidth. I could pay for higher bandwidth, and I don't think that's really the issue as far as the whole internet being faster or slower. And I don't know that I would be particularly against someone paying for overall faster access. The scary part about net neutrality is that, again, as the guy from Young Turks hit it squarely on the head, is that uh, if they are allowed to regulate content, they could potentially make Rush Limbaugh faster and make the Huffington Post slower. So therefore, fewer people go to the Huffington Post and more people go to the Rush Limbaugh simply because that uh, content is more accessible more quickly. And that is the scary part about net neutrality, not the fact that the Internet itself will be faster and slower. So sites we might want to see uh, that aren't backed by major corporations with big pocketbooks um, may... uh, 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 be slower. So best of the left may take forever to to have dial-up speeds, whereas Rush Limbaugh may have breakneck speeds. And that's the real problem and what needs to be made sure is avoided um, for both sides of the political spectrum and all information as well. Uh, Thank you. Bye-bye. Hey,
12: Jay. I just wanted to call and say uh, I love the show. My name is Alex, and I work at Graveyards and... Your show keeps me sane in the quiet hours of the night. I love the political commentary. That also helps me stand my ground with my relatives in conservative Texas. But I especially like the music between the clips. So, having said that, I'd like to be the first to make a music request. My favorite band is Soundgarden, and they have plenty of songs that would fit the show. Next time you do a show on religion, you could play Jesus Christ Pose. Next time you do a clip on how the conservatives have no good policy ideas, there's a Soundgarden song called Nothing to Say. Next time Jon Stewart tells Fox News to go fuck themselves, you could play Big Dumb Sex. If you give that song a listen, you'll hear why it works. So thanks for all you do. Spread progressive ideas. And uh, have a great day. P.S. Could you give a, a shout out a shout-out to Kim B. and Issaquah? Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening, everyone. And thanks, of course, to everyone who called into the show. If you want to be one of those people and call in and leave a message, the number is 206-202-3410. Uh, today's show, it ran long and then the phone calls. Uh, so I, I have very little time. I'll cut myself short. I just want to respond to a couple of the callers actually and say, uh, Nicholas yeah, absolutely is, is right on uh, net neutrality. And, and that little uh, bit of confusion that he was correcting is a perfect example of why net neutrality is such a, a frustrating issue. People don't really understand it very well because it's so easy to uh, to, even when you kind of know what you're talking about, to say things in a way that aren't. Exactly clear. He's right I, that uh, I, I probably sounded like I was talking about the end users having to pay more for faster internet. What I was trying to say was uh, actually the um, like the the internet uh, content providers, such as myself. You know, the Best of the Left has a website, uh, and and obviously the the show is hosted, and so the speed at which my site loads and the show downloads to you know iTunes or wherever, uh, you know, that could be affected by how much I'm willing to pay if uh if net neutrality is is broken as it is uh so th- that's what I was intending to say you know when i was talking about it costing people more to make the internet faster i was talking about the the initial users not the end users Ugh, so frustrating it's such a complicated issue <laughs> that uh it makes it hard to talk about and then um and then in response to requesting music, here's the thing about requesting music. Years ago, I said on the show, um, hey, hey, if you have some musical requests, go ahead and send me an email. And then a couple of people did, and I instantly realized that what I had just done was created more work for myself. And that has never worked out in the history of the show. Whenever, uh, you know, whenever people send in emails saying, hey, here's a list of five or 10 songs you should use, you know I just end up not having the time or not making the time more honestly to go and search out each individual song that they're referencing and download them and listen to them and see if I like them and use them if you if there's a song you want me to play here's what you can do send it to me uh, send me uh, if, if you have a DRM free version of that uh, uh, you know mp3 file on your computer uh, send it to me in, in an email. Or if you want to send me a direct link, like to the iTunes music store, uh, they, they have ways, you know, find the song you want to reference, find the link to it. And then if I can just click a link and listen to like a 30 second uh, example, then I will absolutely check it out and in all likelihood buy it. And again, in all likelihood end up using it in the show. That's, that's my best um, suggestion for how to get musical suggestions played on the show. The last thing I want to say today is that it is a brand new month. Uh, we absolutely rocked the world over at Podcast Alley last month, and I want to do it again, of course. Head over to PodcastAlley.com, vote for Best of the Left, Blast the Right, and the Young Turks. Keep all the progressives up in that uh, you know top three slots over at Podcast Alley. It certainly helps new people find all of those shows and just uh, sends kind of a badass message that progressives are, uh, are taking over the podcasting world. And now to thank a couple of members who rock my world by uh, making this show possible. REM signed up on May 30th and even went above and beyond, uh, you know, creating a, a membership, a monthly membership, a little bit above the uh, the standard membership level. And then also Dennis P signed up and paid for a full year in advance starting on July 31st. So huge thanks to both of those members and all of the members and donors who make the show possible Every one of you out there, please keep spreading the word about the show. It makes a huge difference. Word of mouth is the way to go. To stay connected and even spread the word online, join up with us over on Facebook and Twitter. For details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all of those details are always posted in the show notes on the blog. So, coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you 10 times a month, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com.
8: This is a take you out any open door This is not my life, it's just a phone. farewell to a friend It's not what I'm like.